Good afternoon and happy holidays. This is another edition of Chicago Sports HQ Chatter. Joined as always with Cole Little as we actually have decided to go ahead with an episode this week before the holidays. Cole, how are things going for you? Pretty good, man. How about you? Actually, I was talking to uh, Tony yesterday and I was supposed to be heading to Kentucky today to help my brother move back to Wisconsin, but we're not doing that until tomorrow afternoon into Christmas Eve, so I got a little bit of time to free up today. Okay, cool, yeah. Glad we could get an episode in this week. Got a very – there has been a lot that has gone on the past few days in sports, so we'll start things off with um, Chicago Bears today, and as much as fans hate to admit it or as much as – People hate to admit it for that matter. The Bears are starting to tease us once again and kind of pull us back into hoping they're going to make the playoffs with a big win over the Vikings this weekend. Uh, they have the Jacksonville Jaguars coming up this weekend, so that should be another win. And that ultimately will set up a Week 17 matchup with Green Bay, which chances are is going to really end in heartbreak. But – up until we get to that point, the Bears have actually looked very good, especially on offense, since Bill Lazor has taken over the play-calling duties. And Mitchell Trubisky especially is playing probably his best stretch of football as a pro. I don't know if he's done enough to warrant a long-term extension beyond this year, but given what we've seen from Mitch Trubisky the past three, four games, it wouldn't shock me at all to see the Bears bring him back on a one-year contract to have a full season under Bill Lazor as the play caller and kind of see what happens from there before making any drastic changes. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me either. Um, Yeah, another great week by Trubisky. And, yeah, it's been been a few games now. I mean, ever really since the – the um, end of that Packers game when the offense had sort of an uptick toward the end of that game. The offense has been rolling so um, with Trubisky under center. So, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me either if they decide to bring him back on kind of a one-year prove-it deal, especially considering it looks like they're more than likely not going to have, you know, a, a great draft position in the first round to be able to get a top-tier quarterback. But, yeah, I mean, as for now, you know, the focus is on trying to keep this rolling and and trying to make the playoffs, you know, with with the Cardinals pulling it out against the Eagles on Sunday. Um, the, the Bears are still on the outside looking in, so to speak. But, yeah, you got to figure they'll take care of business against the Jaguars. And, you know, who knows who knows what will happen elsewhere in the NFL and and then you know potentially they'll have a chance to get in the playoffs come week 17 um but yeah it's going to be tough to beat the Packers obviously um especially considering you know more than likely I guess the Packers will have something to play for I mean that's another thing to to look for what they'll have going for them in terms of playoff position heading into week 17 but um, the Bears just need to, you know, focus on 
beating the Jaguars, you know, hopefully for their sake they can get a comfortable win, much like they won comfortably over the Texans, and uh, be able to cruise into the season finale. Yeah, the way I look at things with the Packers is I think it actually ultimately comes down to this week for them where if the Packers beat Tennessee on Sunday night, they clinch the number one seed for the NFC because they have that game in hand on the New Orleans Saints Mm -hmm. for beating them. And with the Saints losing to Kansas City this past weekend, New Orleans is technically two games behind Green Bay. Same thing with Seattle, where if Seattle and Green Bay ended up with the same record, Green Bay gets the tiebreaker based on like conference record and things like that. So if Green Bay beats Tennessee this weekend, they clinch the one seed. That would make things very intriguing for week 17 if the Packers – Yes, I know it's the Bears and the Packers in this big rivalry, but that makes things very intriguing for Week 17 to see if the Packers would be willing to rest a lot of their players knowing that they have the number one seed clinched. And that could actually help the Bears especially because Arizona, I believe, has either the Rams or Seattle in Week 17. Let me pull up their schedule here because, like you said, the Bears beat Jacksonville. They still need the Cardinals to lose a game, and the Cardinals are at the Rams on Week 17. Right, yeah. I mean, it's it's certainly doable. And, um, yeah, I mean, for the Bears, you know, you have to think about the what-ifs um, regarding that Lions game that they blew it down the stretch. You know, if they had pulled that game out, they would be sitting in even better position. But, yeah, it's certainly doable, and yeah, I guess for the Bears' sake, I mean, they need to hope for the best for the Packers this week, so the Packers will have less to play for in Week 17. Yeah, I'm not even looking at the what-ifs from the Detroit game just because I think the Bears should have lost the first game to Detroit early mm-hmm. in the season, so to me it's kind of a, a wash more that the team split because, like I said, I think they should have lost that first game. But to me, it's more of a what if regarding Mitch Trubisky, who is five and two as a starter this year, as opposed to Nick Foles being two and five. I'm more so on the fence of what would the Bears team look like if Trubisky was starting the entire season? And what would this Bears team look like if Bill Lazor took over the play calling duty sooner than what he did? Right, yeah. I mean, all indications point to, um, you know, the the Bears might be might have a better record than they do now if, if those two things were true. But uh, yeah, I mean, maybe the key, the ultimate key, was if Laser had taken over play calling duties earlier, because you know, obviously, the way Trubisky was playing when Foles took over the starting job, and also how. Foles had performed in relief of Trubisky, you know, that decision made sense. So it's hard to really totally question that decision in hindsight. But certainly um, thinking about if, if Lazor had, you know, had, had controlled the play calling duties much earlier in the season, um, this offense had, would have maybe been able to escape that serious funk where you know, I mean, they were like one of the worst offensive teams in the NFL for a stretch. So, yeah, I mean, certainly have to wonder what their record would be like if if that had happened. Yeah, and the funny thing is, 
for 11, 12 weeks, it was the defense that was carrying this Bears team. And now all of a sudden, mm-hmm. the defense is taking giant steps backwards the past four weeks. And now the offense has been the thing carrying Chicago. If you rewatch that game on Sunday and you look at that last second Hail Mary that Kirk Cousins threw to the end zone, Justin Jefferson was inches away from making that play, mm-hmm. especially when I think it was either Kyle Fuller or Eddie Jackson, instead of knocking it down, they more so tipped it up in the air. Right. That kind of would have been like a cosmic ending to the Bears season, knowing that the defense has carried this team for so long and had Justin Jefferson caught that pass it would have been the defense that ultimately knocked the Bears out of the playoffs. Yeah, that would have been crazy. Um, and, yeah, certainly that there were a couple heart-stopping moments there on that play. But, yeah, the defense certainly hasn't been as great as it was in recent weeks. And, of course, on Sunday, you know, they were affected by not having Jalen Johnson and some other injury issues. But, yeah, secondary hasn't been nearly as good, um, and just the defense as a whole hasn't been as dominant as it was, you know, when the Bears' offense was sputtering. But, you know, other than really the Lions let down, it hasn't been – hasn't really affected the Bears too much in terms of wins and losses recently. But, um, yeah, I mean – you know, it's certainly something to keep an eye on. But as for now, the Bears are probably just hoping that, um, you know, they can just dominate a terrible Jaguars team and then hope that the Packers will have nothing to play for and we'll have some backups in there and in week 17. And that, you know, it, it won't – the uh, Bears' defensive backslide uh, won't really – coming to fruition anymore and won't really affect them too much. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Switching over to college football now, we'll start with the ACC championship game in Notre Dame versus Clemson. And uh, both of us kind of predicted that Clemson was going to win. Both of us predicted that both Notre Dame and Clemson should be in the college football playoff following that result just because – Notre Dame beat Clemson the first time, so you really can't punish them too much for losing the second time as opposed to where if Clemson would have lost, they could have ultimately been the ones getting punished the most. I'm not sure I expected as much of a one-sided game as things ended up being because Clemson basically dominated Notre Dame start to finish in every facet. Then it also makes me wonder what that first game would have looked like if Trevor Lawrence and all these players played at South Bend. Yeah, I mean, I I was a little surprised just how poorly Notre Dame played. I mean, that was pretty pathetic, to be honest. Um, and certainly, you know, I'm sure it caused plenty of, of anxiety there in South Bend regarding whether or not um, they would end up in the playoff field. You know, I mean, that certainly gave uh, – I'm sure that gave Texas A&M some hope seeing how poorly Notre Dame played. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, outside of the first, like, five or six plays of the game when Notre Dame was driving it down Clemson's throat, um, it was all Clemson. And, uh, yeah, that was just a a really lopsided game. You know, I had mentioned that I figured this would be the um, first ACC championship game in several years, you know, involving Clemson that would 
um, be kind of a nail biter, but I mean, it wasn't at all. Uh, so yeah, I mean, Clemson certainly earned their spot as the number two team and Notre Dame will just have to be happy with, uh, have to be content with, with the number four spot. You know, I mean, obviously like more than likely the committee, if, you know, Clemson, even Clemson beat Notre Dame in a normal fashion would have made Ohio State three, Notre Dame four to avoid having, you know, Clemson, Notre Dame play for a third time. Um, but yeah, Notre Dame certainly was, was, you know, locked into the four um, considering how poorly they played uh, in the ACC championship game. But yeah, I mean, you do have to question like how good Notre Dame really is. And if that win over Clemson was just sort of a fluky situation, considering Clemson not only didn't have Trevor, but also had, you know, a slew of defensive injuries before the game and, you know, heading into the game rather, and also like late in the game, some different players leave the game banged up. And you have to wonder if that contributed to how much that contributed to Notre Dame pulling out the, the win, pulling off the win there. But, you know, I mean, I don't have a problem with Notre Dame getting in. You know, they had enough – I mean, not pretty good wins. You know, the North Carolina win is is obviously a pretty good win to factor in as well. And, uh, yeah, it would have been tough to leave them out considering they, you know, beat Clemson the first time around. But, um, obviously, I mean, the expectation is that Alabama will dominate Notre Dame um, in the um, Rose Bowl, the, the Rose Bowl in Texas. And, um yeah, I mean, I you know, it's it's going to be tough for for Notre Dame to hang in against that Alabama offense for very long. Yeah, and I was just about to bring that up too of uh, how Texas A&M was making the argument that they should get in over Ohio State or whatnot, and Notre you Notre Dame, I think I'm not going to take anything away from their season. They had a great season. They have a great team. I'm not really going to question how good of a team they really have because a team that normally plays an independent schedule went to the ACC this year and basically proved they belong in that conference. That win against Clemson, I think, basically solidified them as a playoff team as long as they could have taken care of business in the regular season, which they did. And then that win against North Carolina over or at the end of the year kind of gave them the resume nod over a team like Texas A&M and Florida mainly because Texas A&M really doesn't have that big win on their resume like Notre Dame did. But then you look at how Texas A&M played against Alabama the first time when they got their doors blown off themselves. Why would Texas A&M even want another shot at Alabama knowing that's what happened the first time? Why not just watch somebody else just go out there and get their doors blown off instead of you twice? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess so, but you know, they certainly would have loved to to get in the playoff just to you know be able to say they they got there and keep it rolling. You know, A and M's never been to the playoff since it started. So, um, but yeah, um, you know, as far as Ohio State, I mean, I guess that's some you know, obviously that's something else to think about is is A and M. Yeah, I mean, A&M probably thinks they deserve to get in over both 
Ohio State and Notre Dame. Um, just the thing with Ohio State, and I know we'll talk about the Big Ten championship here in a minute, but um, yeah. just for Ohio State, I mean, I was I was never expecting them to be left out, honestly, after they beat Northwestern because I just know the committee would have a hard time saying that that team wasn't one of the four best based on the eye test and, you know, and everything else we know about. Ohio State, how much talent they have, et cetera. And just, you know, and also knowing, like, you know, all that the Big Ten went through to to make changes to make that a reality for Ohio State to have a chance to get in as the Big Ten champ. I just wasn't really expecting that. So, yeah, I mean, I think they, the, you know, the one through four is the most logical in a way, the most expected. Um, the easiest to um, explain away, I guess. I mean, with you know, with A and M, if they had gotten in over either Ohio State or Notre Dame, I feel like that would have created much more of a hullabaloo um, as opposed to A and M being on the outside looking in. So I think the committee went with kind of the safest route, and. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the expectation, again, is that Notre Dame will get destroyed by Alabama. But then again, the same would probably happen with Texas A&M, you know, at the Sugar Bowl. I mean, assuming that assuming that Saban would have chosen to play in the Sugar Bowl against a team from Texas as opposed to the Rose Bowl in Texas. But um, regardless, you know. My expectation would be that that Alabama would win big. Yeah, I guess what you were saying about the committee, and this will be – I'm not even going to really get into a debate on it, but the committee was kind of forced to put Ohio State in the college football playoff, I believe, mainly because they changed the rule to let Ohio State play in the Big Ten championship, whereas if Ohio State does not get in that Big Ten championship game, I honestly do not think they would have gotten into the playoffs for the same reason that Texas A&M and all these other teams had the argument against them. Texas A&M, Alabama, Clemson, and all these teams played a full 11-12 game schedule. It's not their fault the Big Ten did what they did, and Ohio State only played six games. It would have only been five games if they didn't get that Big Ten championship game. I don't care what Ohio State's program prestige is or any of that. They don't deserve to get in with just five games under their belt at over Texas A&M who played a full schedule, especially if they would have not gotten into that Big Ten championship game. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I totally don't think they would have gotten in if they had um, not won the Big Ten championship game and only had five games under their belt. That was just kind of the way that, you know, the committee could explain it away is by saying, well, they're, you know, the – the definitive champs of the Big Ten, they're undefeated. You know, they passed the eye test. We can put them in. But if they were only – had only played five games, you know, and really only one of those games against a good team in Indiana, um, then, you know, and not been the Big Ten champ, then I don't see how the committee would have put them in and that would have created a nightmare scenario for um, the Big Ten. But, yeah, I mean, that was sort of like, you know, I mean, I agree with you. It was kind of like the the um, 
the Big Ten sort of forced the committee's hand, which was the whole point of the matter, with by changing the rule to put them in the Big Ten championship game, was that the Big Ten, the committee would have a really hard time keeping Ohio State out. And, you know, as we saw, they they didn't, and they took the easiest, most explainable route and put Ohio State in. Yeah, and sticking with the Big Ten championship game, I was actually very impressed with Northwestern. I know a loss is a loss, and nobody's happy with a loss, but take the 22-10 score and look at it any way you want. Northwestern really controlled that game start to finish, and if it wasn't for their three turnovers, I honestly feel that Northwestern could have won that game and probably does win that game, especially if they don't have that one turnover in the red zone late in the first half. And now they just got to hope that this loss kind of doesn't hang over them because they do have a game with Auburn coming up. Just what were your thoughts on Northwestern itself and then kind of looking ahead to their matchup with Auburn next weekend? Yeah, I was impressed. I mean, I certainly didn't expect it to be that close. And, yeah, it's. I mean, it certainly seemed at some point in that game you know, it was easy to envision Northwestern pulling off the upset based on how they were playing. But um, I guess the surprising aspect is, you know, the the rushing yards given up by Northwestern to Trey Sermon, you know, who set the single-game rushing record for Ohio State. Um, I definitely didn't see that coming, but, you know, that ultimately made the difference. And for Ohio State, yeah, Justin Fields never really looked like himself. You know, he said afterward he talked about maybe having a sprained thumb on his throwing hand. And Ohio State also didn't have their top receiver, Alave. Uh, but, yeah, they just kind of rode Trey Sermon to victory in the second half. And, um, yeah, I mean, the turnovers made a big difference for Northwestern and you know, another thing, too, is, I mean, at the end of the day, having a quarterback who's maybe not good enough for to win in a big spot like that, and Peyton Ramsey sort of made the difference because he made some pretty dumb or, or poor throws down the stretch there in that game. But, you know, because he's more of kind of a game manager quarterback, so to speak, or at least he was throughout the regular season. But, yeah, now they get to – take on an Auburn team that I don't even know how, you know, how excited Auburn will be to to be playing in the Citrus Bowl. I mean, obviously Auburn had coming into the season had New York New Year's six aspirations and ended up having a very disappointing regular season that ultimately culminated in Gus Malzahn getting fired. And so now, I mean, you know, you got to wonder, like, how many players will even be playing for Auburn in that game if they'll have some opt-outs or whatnot. Um, as for Northwestern, I'm sure they'll be rip-roaring and ready to go for that bowl game. You know, because with that program, I mean, anytime you get a chance to play in a big bowl game, which obviously the Citrus Bowl is about, you know, the, about one of the biggest uh, non-New Year's Six Bowls there is. Um there's there's definitely, um, you know, you can definitely expect them to be pumped up and ready to win that game. So 
I certainly like their chances to come away with a win there. I mean, I guess they'll have to um, take on Bo Nix, the Auburn quarterback, who's obviously pretty good, you know, a solid dual-threat quarterback, and um, they'll have their work cut out for them there. But, you know, I expect this defense to be up for to the task. And, um, yeah, I mean, that would be a great way to cap off what has been a solid you know, promising year for this program to to get a win in a pretty notable bowl game. Yeah, and then we'll switch over to Illinois quick, and we're not even going to dissect their loss against Penn State, which I, I figured they were going to lose to Penn State, but I had no idea it was going to be as ugly as it was going to be. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's what you get when you get rid of Lovey Smith before the season is over, but Illinois is now bringing in Brent Bielema to be their new head coach. And I really have no kind of thoughts and comments on this. I thought there was much better options out there. I thought there was much better choices out there to have come into Illinois over Bielema. I know he's had success in the Big Ten as the head coach of the Badgers, but he still never really lived up to what everyone expected him to live up to when he was with Wisconsin. And then he went to Arkansas and was complete trash. So I don't know (laughs) what he expects to get out of him. But like, what are your thoughts on the hire itself with Bielema coming in? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty interesting one, you know, as far as Illinois is concerned, I mean, based on the Penn state blowout, you know, they, they certainly can, they certainly need to, you know, experience a defensive overhaul heading into next season and maybe Bielema can be the guy who can help accomplish that. But yeah, it's, I mean, I can understand the trepidate, the trepidation over the hire, you know, we talked about last week over, you know, about Lance Leipold or some other people who, who are more promising and then Bielema who you have to imagine is, you know, kind of wore out his welcome as a head coach, at Arkansas, or at least you would think that that would maybe um, be hard for him to get another power five job after that. But, you know, I mean, I guess he deserves another chance based on what he accomplished at Wisconsin. You know, his career is is interesting because, I mean, he went from winning, what, three Big Ten titles in a row at Wisconsin to – sort of completely falling out of favor with how disastrous the, you know, the Arkansas tenure was. Um, Obviously it surprised a lot of people that he would even leave Wisconsin to go to, to go to the SEC. You know, he seems like a big 10 guy through and through, and that was just a total nightmare, but now he finds himself back in, um, back in the big 10 and taking over an Illinois team that, you know, has not been to a major bowl game in over a decade and um, has not, you know, has also not really been a competitive team at the top of the Big Ten in over a decade. So he's certainly going to have his work cut out for him. Um, you know, Illinois is going to – Illinois is going to bring back, you know, some pretty good talent next year and – um you know, you have to wonder if Isaiah Williams is the future of that program at quarterback. We shall see. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think it's cause for alarm that Bielma's back 
in that spot, but I just, you know, based on how his head coaching career kind of fell apart, unraveled pretty severely. I mean, I can understand why Illinois fans or, or pundits or anybody would be concerned about, you know, whether or not he's the right guy for the job and, and helping to turn around this program. Well, the one thing that I always look at when I look at games like or games, but uh, teams like this is when he was in Wisconsin, he was having a lot of success because Wisconsin is like one of the better recruiting programs in the Big Ten. And they get like a lot of the Midwest kids from like Michigan, Minnesota, Indiana and Illinois, kind of those surrounding states, as opposed when he leaves and goes to Arkansas you have to compete with Alabama and Florida and all those schools for recruits. And Bielema never really had like four or five star recruits at Wisconsin. There were a lot of two, three star recruits, walk on players that kind of developed into good players versus you go to a school like Arkansas, you're going to need those four and five star recruits down there. Otherwise you have no chance to compete with the schools down there. Yeah. I mean, of course, being in the SEC West, like Arkansas is, is a, whole nother animal and he just yeah I mean I just wonder how tough it was for him to recruit in that region I mean you know I don't want to be too like (laughs) I don't want to be too like exclusionary of people from you know the big region no I think I think it was very difficult for him to recruit in that area because he wasn't used to it he was used to specific recruits that he was getting from the Midwest and the Northeast area. And now he's got to go there where it's Texas, right. the Southeast and everything where he's thinking if he, the recruits that he was getting at Arkansas would have been complete stars at Wisconsin, yeah. but it's a completely different animal in the sec. So basically he was recruiting a Rutgers type team in the sec pretty much. Right. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Cause yeah, in the big 10, I mean, it's obviously smash mouth football you get a lot of quote unquote you know corn fed boys who can come in and just kind of compete their way into putting together great college careers and having a big beastly offensive line is important and just sort of having a smash mouth offense whereas in the sec yeah like you said having athletes having high a high flying offense all that stuff is is integral to you know, competing and obviously for Arkansas, just in general, I mean, you know, it's tough for Arkansas, regardless of who's head coach to compete with the the blue bloods down there in the SEC. So for Bielema, who, you know, obviously just has the, um, the total vibes of, of a big 10 coach through and through from the way he looks to his build, to his, you know, approach to, to coach him, I mean, this is obvious he's a Big Ten guy, which is totally fine. And, you know, there are lots of SEC guys who could maybe go to a Big Ten school and really struggle there because it wouldn't be the same football mentality as they're used to in the SEC. Uh, so with that being said, I mean, I just think, you know, I mean, the thing with him taking the Arkansas job is I don't – it's shocked a lot of people from the jump and didn't really make sense. And, you know, unfortunately for him, like he certainly did not exceed expectations there. So it's kind of like that sort of marred his entire head coaching reputation. But, you know, now that he's back in in a region 
or he choose to recruiting and coaching. Uh, maybe he'll, you know, turn things around. I know he, he when he was on uh, college game day on Saturday, he talked about, um, you know, he expected to really compete, you know, to a top tier, like compete well um, in the state of Illinois. I guess be you know turning the Fighting Illini into the top you know target for for Illinois recruits, and just recruit in state and and you know go through and try to utilize in state recruiting and helping to turn around the, the Illinois program. So uh, that'll be key is just seeing how well he can he can get back into the recruiting game in Big Ten country. Yeah, and we'll stick with the Big Ten, but we'll switch to college basketball now. And we're going to start with Northwestern, who pulled off a rather incredible upset this weekend against Michigan State, 79-65. Like we were discussing last week, this Northwestern team, given the struggles that we've seen from them the past two years, may have not been a team that people were talking about in the Big Ten this year. But after the way they played against Michigan State this week, and they've certainly now have put their conversations as a legitimate threat in the Big Ten. Yeah, that was an impressive win, and certainly not a fluky win. I mean, they won, you know, in in comfortable fashion. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's they've certainly ex- exceeded expectations so far. I mean, we talked about last week how you know, based on the eye test alone, um, it was obvious that they were better than. They were they were large they were expected to be in large part, but yeah that was a legit win you know anytime you can beat Michigan State especially a top five ranked Michigan State team I mean that's you know that's arguably one of uh, Chris Collins' best wins as Northwestern head coach so and of course it kind of flew under the radar because um, you know this past weekend was all about football so college basketball wasn't maybe necessarily getting the attention it deserved, but that's a big win early in, in Big Ten play. And, um, you know, we'll see if Northwestern can can keep it going and build off it and go from there and, you know, get themselves into the NCAA tournament conversation. And while Northwestern might be riding a bit of a high right now, Illinois is starting to run into some roadblocks here. They lost to Baylor. Then they go and win that big game at Duke, lose on the road to Missouri, physically dominate Minnesota, and then they go on the road against a quality Rutgers team who picked up the 91-88 win, and now Rutgers is sitting at 6-0 and and approaching the top 10 versus Illinois, who's fallen now to 5-3 and and is sitting around number 20. I'm not going to say it's a bad loss because anytime you go on the road against a top 25 team, it's always going to be tough either with fans or without fans. But what have you noticed with Illinois the past few games as opposed to kind of the hot start that they got, that they got off to at the beginning of the season? Yeah, I mean, defensive struggles, you know, obviously in that Rutgers game, I mean, giving up 91 points is obviously never never good in Big Ten basketball. But, um, yeah, I mean, and, and holding on to leads – you know, it, it, especially in that game, I mean, they led by double digits in the first half and, you know, were clearly the the better team. And then, you know, Rutgers got hot and was able to chip away at the lead. 
Um, and you know, then down the stretch, Rutgers have a had a twelve run, twelve one run that helped them pull away and and or just kind of hold off Illinois. I should I should say and, and come away with the three point win. But um, yeah, I mean Illinois, you know, they're still really good. I mean, like I, you know, I still stick to what I said. They're certainly in this crazy season where it's going to be hard to predict much of anything. You know, I certainly still consider them a viable Final Four contender. Um, they just have a lot of talent, you know, a lot of, I won't say raw talent, but just a lot of guys who are top-tier athletes who maybe need to, you know, put it all together and become more complete basketball players. So they certainly have some more room for growth. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I expect them to be able to compete you know, at the top of the Big Ten um, for the remainder of the season. And uh, loss to Rutgers, you know, three-point loss to Rutgers is certainly nothing to scoff at. I mean, that Rutgers team is legit, you know, and they're I'm sure they're playing with extra motivation after, you know, last season. I mean, they had a chance to make the tournament for the first time in forever. But obviously that got taken away from them. I mean, they were going to for sure make the tournament prior to it getting canceled. Um, so this year they want to, you know, leave no doubt, I'm sure, that they're that they're a tournament team and be sure to to get in this time around in 2021. Um, as for Illinois, I mean, they can certainly still expect to be a tournament team as well. Uh, they just kind of need to right the ship here and defensively at least and you know, become a more sound basketball team as they proceed with with Big Ten play. Yeah, Notre Dame, on the other hand, is coming off a tough week. Uh, they had they battled they battled both Purdue and Duke. Unfortunately, they came away with two ten point losses in the process. Uh, we said last week that you know Notre Dame was kind of playing, I think, a little bit above where people expected them to play, and then they kind of go and have a week like this, which is kind of, I think, the play that people expected for the most part. Uh, Notre Dame is just one of those teams where I think it's going to be hit or miss, where they're going to go through like three or four games where they're kind of playing well, and then they're going to go through three or four games where they're not playing well. Is that kind of how yeah, you see I them agree. going this year? And, you know, also for what it's worth, I mean, the win at Kentucky doesn't look as good now that we find out that Kentucky's like <laughs> completely imploding, like nothing we've ever seen before with Big Blue Nation. But um, yeah, I mean those were two, you know, fairly underwhelming performances. I mean, Duke won by ten, but you know it really could have been twenty, and it would have had sort of the same feel. I mean, you know, after Duke announced that they wouldn't have Jalen Johnson for an indefinite amount of time. You know, you would expect Duke to be kind of playing, um, you know, down, so to speak, in that game, not really kind of struggling to find some – generate offense without Jalen Johnson in there. But um, that certainly wasn't the case. I mean, Duke really controlled that game from from start to finish, and then Notre Dame turned around and lost to Purdue. and kind of a similar fashion. I mean, they put up a better offensive numbers in that game on a neutral court 
in Indianapolis, but you know, Purdue won that one kind of comfortably. And obviously Purdue doesn't have nearly the talent that Duke does, but um, so, yeah, I mean, those are two pretty underwhelming losses with all that being said, you know, Notre Dame gets to take on Bellarmine who's new to D one this year. So that's a, that's a chance to get a, to get back on the track back on. There. Do you know much about Bellarmine? Um, well, I mean, I know they're new to, you know, the D1, and I think their first D1 game was um, against against Duke recently. Yeah, they are actually – they are new to D1, but they are actually a very, very solid program. They were in Division Two. I can't remember how long they were in Division Two, but they've won – seven of the last 10 division two national championships. So they, it's not like they have a terrible team. They have the talent, but now that they're in D one, they finally have a chance to get more scholarships than what they did. And they lost by 20 points against Duke, I believe in that first game. But when they played Duke, they actually impressed me because I didn't know much about them until they were playing in that game. And then I kind of was listening to the announcers during that game and they were kind of like describing who built who they were, where they came from, and how they got to become a Division One program. And if they continued the same trend that they did in Division Two, they're going to have a very successful run in Division One, and they will probably be one of those teams that you can count on to consistently battle for the Atlantic Sun Conference Championship and be one of those teams that will probably be an NCAA tournament team in the short future. Yeah, well, then maybe Notre Dame will have their work cut out for them. But, um, yeah, I mean, Notre Dame should certainly hope to – to get a double-digit win in that one at home before they have to take on Virginia, who obviously always has a great defense. But, um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Notre Dame, we can just expect them to kind of play well in stretches probably. And, you know, they can – as long as they can um, take care of business in the ACC against teams they're supposed to beat, they'll at least have a chance to maybe hear their name called on Selection Sunday. But, yeah, certainly an an underwhelming week for them this past week. And then we'll briefly touch on DePaul quick before we move to the NBA. And DePaul is set to play their first game tomorrow slash today, depending on when this podcast hits the – page for fans and they've had a very rough go for the beginning of their season they've had their first five games either postponed or canceled so instead of taking the floor in late November like everybody else they're kind of hitting the floor for the first time this year a month after everybody else and they have a Western Illinois team scheduled first before they just get right into conference play it's going to be very interesting to see this DePaul team they've had 10 games canceled or postponed throughout the course of the season so far. And being that all these teams have already had three, four weeks to kind of gel as a group, this team taking the floor for the first time and then kind of jumping into it. I really don't know what to expect. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, this is like a nightmare scenario. I mean, I have to wonder if anybody else around the country has had to, you know, any other team around the country has had to endure what DePaul has and at the start of this season, I mean, yeah, they've, they've yet to play a game. Like, that's just unbelievable. I mean, the the season started on November 25th. They've yet to 
take the floor. That's that's just horrible, and I feel bad for obviously the players and the coaches and everybody involved. But yeah, I mean they you know they get kind of an exhibition so to speak against Western Illinois before they get thrown into the fire uh, going into Big East play, but. Yeah, I mean, as much as I hate to say it, I don't expect this. I'm not expecting too much from DePaul this season. I mean, just, you know, having to miss all those games, especially the the winnable games against mid-majors back at the beginning of the season, you know, where you can – where teams like, you know, teams like DePaul can look to kind of settle into their own and, and come together. Um, you know, they're not going to have that opportunity really. Um, so I just, you know, and they, they, they're at Providence on Sunday is their big East opener, assuming they, they'll be able to play in that one. And, you know, we'll just see how it goes, but I mean, it's going to be tough sledding, obviously. And then I'll actually just touch on UIC really quick as I just picked, pulled them up. Uh, they're off to a five and two start, uh, two and oh in the horizon league as they picked up a pair of wins against Oakland over the weekend. And I did not know this is how the horizon league is doing their schedule, but they're basically, they're playing everybody in the horizon league twice, but they're doing it on back-to-back days. So the next set of games for the Chicago is Saturday and Sunday at Milwaukee. And then they'll get Detroit the first and second of January and so on and so forth, where every game they play, it's basically a back-to-back doubleheader. You kind of like that idea of how the horizon league is doing the schedule. And do you wish that, more conferences would do that? Or do you wish like how most conferences do it now where you play everybody through the conference once and then you'll kind of rotate again and come back maybe like a month later and face the conference Yeah, again? I kind of like that for this season at least. I mean, it seems like a logical, at least for mid-major conferences, you know, it seems like a logical way to get games in without avoiding or and, you know, try to avoid any COVID situations. Like it's this, the – safest easiest way to ensure you can get all the games in and i mean obviously in the horizon league they're not really worried about you know their games being shown on television at least not on you know nationally tell nationally televised games that is so uh, they can do that and you know that's kind of like the ivy league approach of course ivy league basketball typically does that because of the rigorous academics they don't want you know players have to miss classes and whatnot so during the week so they'll typically do like a friday they'll do friday saturday games um so yeah i mean you know the ivy league does it every year so it's certainly doable for other small conferences um so yeah i mean i i like that for sure for this year at least And now we'll switch over to the NBA, and the NBA season kicks off tonight. Uh, Bulls do not take the floor until tomorrow when they get Atlanta for their not only their home opener, but for their season opener. I got to admit, I was very impressed with how this Bulls team played this preseason going 3-1. and one. And it wasn't just the fact that they went 3-1. and one. Take away that first game where they gave up the 125 points to Houston, but defensively they were very good defensively their final three games of the preseason they were very consistent offensively where they scored at least 104 points in all four of their preseason games you have guys like Patrick Williams who 
both of us thought it may have been a reach at the number four pick, but now he's actually showing that he could be a legitimate number four pick given what we've seen from him so far. Kobe White continues to develop. Zach Levine, Otto Porter, and a lot of the players that struggled last season outside of Levine are kind of starting to get back into their groove again next year. This Bulls team, I think, could be a fun team to watch this year, and I'm, I'm looking forward to their game against Atlanta tomorrow. tomorrow. Uh, what are your thoughts heading into that season? Yeah, I mean, they certainly Atlanta. get a winnable game right off the bat. You know, and to go 3-1 and one in preseason play, uh, win the last three you know, like you said, some pretty solid defensive performances. Um, yeah, I was impressed. You know, I was especially impressed with how Patrick Williams integrated himself into the offense. I mean, he certainly looked the part of a lottery pick in the preseason. So we'll see how that translates to the regular season. But, yeah, I mean, you know, again, with Chicago, is is just going to be relying on winning – um, winnable games, at least in the first half of the season, you know, and, and certainly the Hawks, they should be looking to, to win that game over the Hawks to kick off the season and, you know, just look to kind of settle in under Donovan and his staff and, and, um, look for Kobe White to ascend and look for Patrick Williams to continue to integrate himself into the, into the rotation and, just hope to get wins where you can find them. Yeah, I know we kind of want to look at uh, Atlanta being as a winnable game, but I just pulled up their roster, and Atlanta has actually really improved their roster. They went out and signed Bogdan Bagdanovich this offseason. They got Clint Capella from Houston. They got Danilo mm-hmm. Gallinari in free agency. They, they acquired Chris Dunn, who was previously with the Bulls, so he's going to probably go out to – try to prove a point this year. So looking at the Atlanta Hawks roster, they actually have added a lot of pieces that could also make them one of the surprise teams in the Eastern Conference. Right, yeah, they're in a similar position as the Bulls. I mean, they should expect to, you know, get winnable games where you can find them and wind up in the playoffs. You know, obviously Trey Young had a great year last year and um, can be expected to be even better this year, you know, he's quickly proving to be one of the best point guards, best young point guards in the NBA. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Bulls get him at home in the season opener, so they should certainly look to look to start off 1-0. and But, yeah, I mean, like you said, the Hawks uh, certainly rounded out that roster in the offseason and especially benefited from the Bogdanovich situation with the Bucks you know, that falling apart, and then he kind of fell into their lap. Um, Or at least Bogdanovich, you know, really in the end seemed like he really wanted to go to the Hawks. But, um, yeah, I mean, the Bulls, you know, kind of in a similar situation. So, you know, the Bulls should look to start off 1-0 and and get off on the right foot. Uh, But if not, I mean, that'll be understandable. And then yesterday I had uh, ESPN on brief on briefly yesterday, and I caught something that Adam Silver said, but I didn't catch the whole thing, so I went back to kind of look at what Adam Silver was talking about. And after constantly reiterating that the NBA has no intentions to expand, now it appears that Adam Silver is kind of backtracking a little bit and 
is now more willing to have an NBA expansion more than ever. And oddly enough, COVID could be the reason for that. And the reason why I say that is NBA had, has come with that new agreement where they said they were going to give these teams like a line of credit to help with their financial struggles that they've had this past season. And after looking into what an expansion team would get, an expansion team would roughly be getting $1 billion to become an expansion team. And that money would be divided out 30 different ways. So each team would roughly be getting 33 to $34 million. That's an incredibly steep, and an incredible amount of money to pass up. So it makes sense for the NBA to expand. But if they were to do that, you would think that they would have to expand to 32 teams right away as opposed to 31, knowing that how difficult the scheduling always is with an odd number of teams. And I already was kind of like looking into it where I figure Seattle for sure is going to be in line to get a team back considering how they've tried to have one for – I don't know, probably every year since Oklahoma City took their team away. And then I said Vancouver would be one of those teams that could possibly get a team back because they lost their team to Memphis. And then I said Kansas City as a possibility. But the one city that I think ultimately could cement themselves as an expansion city is Tampa Bay. And the reason why I say that is that is where the Toronto Raptors are playing a lot of their games, if not all of their home games this year. And if Tampa Bay shows, like, a very good reception to having the Toronto Raptors in Tampa, I think that could go a long way in terms of getting an expansion team in Tampa. What are your thoughts on the NBA possibly expanding or at least for the most part open to expanding now? And what markets do you think would be some good destinations? To yeah, get I mean, it makes sense, you know, especially considering the NHL's expanded obviously in recent years to 32 teams now with the Seattle team coming in. Um, So it makes sense that the NBA would be looking to expand, you know, I mean, also you have to look at the NFL, which has 32 teams and is obviously kind of like the standard bearer for, you know, professional sports leagues in America. So yeah, it's been talked about for a, a little while now or quite a while now moving adding a new team to Seattle to give them a team back. I mean, obviously that's the most logical destination to add an expansion team. But, yeah, assuming the NBA wants to continue to have an even number of teams and go up to 32. Yeah, I mean, I like the cities you named. Obviously Tampa, you know, could potentially um, establish itself as being a logical destination this year since, like you said, the Raptors – going to be there quite a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, you also look at, you know, Nashville uh, and Tennessee. That could be a, um, a potential destination. Um, you know, you got to look at teams that also maybe, you know, places that have like several other professional teams but don't have um, an NBA team, you know, especially a team that already maybe has like a hockey rink in place that could always serve as a temporary location for an NBA team, a place like Pittsburgh, maybe. Um, you have to wonder if they'll be, the NBA will be looking internationally and, you know, hoping to, to get another international team in addition to um, Toronto. I mean, yeah, potentially giving Vancouver back a team again could, could, 
be something, you know, maybe somewhere else in Canada. Um, um, you know, I mean, heck, you can maybe even expect Mexico City to be thrown around as a potential destination. But, you know, I expect the NBA to look at, you know, places that have had NBA teams before, such as Seattle, um, you know, Kansas City, Cincinnati, places like that that have had NBA teams at some point in time. Um, and then also, you know, yeah, look at destinations that are known as having great fan bases for their other sports, um, but just, you know, don't happen to have a, an NBA team like, you know, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I mean, expansion makes sense. You know, it, it seems only logical that the NBA would be looking to grow um, and, and keep up with the expansion of the NHL. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely cool to hear that Adam Silver is open to expansion. Yeah, and I've always I've always been in favor of expansion. Um, like you were saying, how the NFL kind of set the bar with 32 teams and you have NHL that is expanding to 32 teams now and then you have basketball and hockey or basketball and um baseball stuck at 30. Baseball's already talked about expanding to 32 teams, so it makes sense that NBA is going to discuss it too. MLS is continuing to expand. They get another team this year. They get another team next year. Then they get two more in 2023, which would give them 30. But yeah, just in regards to the expanding itself, if the NBA is going to do it, it's not it's not something that's going to happen right away, obviously, because I don't think they can afford to put two expansion teams in for one year. But I think they have to do it where they have to expand it to – um, 32 teams because you look at how the scheduling was in the NHL when they had 27 teams. You look at how the scheduling in the NBA was when they had 29 teams. Having that odd number is so difficult when it comes to scheduling because you always have to have one team off every single day and you always have to have a certain amount of teams off during the week versus you have an even number of teams. You could have teams play you could have every single team play like a specific night a week and the scheduling just would be so much e easier having an even number of teams and an even yeah, number definitely. of divisions. And I mean, also look at how, you know, having an odd number, number of teams made the NHL standings pretty, you know, the, the alignment of the NHL pretty weird and not ideal where you have a different number of teams in each conference. And, you know, obviously like, four gigantic divisions with a bunch of teams. So, yeah, I mean, I can imagine and, and hope that the NBA would hope to um, you know, maintain an even number of teams at all times. And then last topic we'll get into today, and it's something that we talked about last week, but the NHL has officially confirmed that there will be a season starting on January 13th. There was a lot of talk that it was going to be a 52 or a 56-game schedule, and they've agreed on 56. But they've also agreed on a one-year alignment plan for this year, a realignment plan for this year, which is ultimately going to be a two-year realignment plan because they're going to have to realign again next year when Seattle comes in. 
and they've said that all games are going to be played within each team's division. So given the Canadian government and their travel restrictions, all seven Canadian teams are going to be in the only – they're the only division that's going to have seven teams. Everybody else is going to have eight. But all the Canada teams are going to be playing in Canada. They're going to face each other nine or ten times. And then the other three divisions are going to have eight teams in each division, and you're going to play the seven opponents within that division eight times each to make up the 56 games. And the good thing about this is the division that the Blackhawks got put in. They got put in the Central, so they stayed in the Central Division. Yes, they're losing teams like the St. Louis Blues, who are kind of a good rival to the Blackhawks, but they are getting to the Detroit Red Wings back in that division. So instead of, you know, the old Blackhawks-Red Wing rivalries where they would face each other three, maybe four times a year, now fans get to see that rivalry eight times a year. And honestly, I think this is the best thing NHL could have done for one reason. You bring that Detroit Red Wings, Chicago Blackhawks rivalry back, and you let these teams play each other eight times this year and just kind of like get that rivalry back to what it once was. I'm willing to bet that when that realignment phase goes into process again next year for Seattle, Chicago and Detroit will be put back. Yeah, I agree. And I would hope so. I mean, that was one of the real bummers of, um, you know, the realignment that took place after the addition of the Vegas team um, is that, you know, that a lot of some of the rivalries were broken up, especially in the Blackhawks whole division. And, you know, with the Red Wings going to the East and the Blackhawks staying in the West. So it's cool to see that rivalry back in place um, for this, for this season. And be also Columbus and Nashville in there as well. And that, central that makeshift central division um so yeah i mean i i I agree with you i think that's one of the coolest things about it i certainly noticed that right off the bat that chicago and detroit were back together and yeah i mean it's pretty interesting you know how all of this came to fruition and I mean, obviously, you have to imagine that the Canadian situation is one of the main reasons why it took so long to really, you know, get the ball rolling for this season and make anything official because the NHL had to navigate that and see how they were going to overcome that. But, yeah, that's that's it's, it's going to be odd. I mean, when you basically, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, it's very, it's a very old school approach, like to just have the teams playing the teams within their division a whole bunch. And then obviously, you know, heading to the postseason. But um, yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe this will, I don't know, maybe this will give Canada its best chance to get a Stanley Cup winner for the first time since the 90s. Um, you know, if, if the, Canadian teams can just beat up on each other and maybe the best of the best team will emerge from that group. But yeah, I mean, it's obviously tough, you know, this is just going to be a tough season to navigate due to COVID and, you know, the, the realignment makes sense. And, you know, obviously it's not ideal and not having the normal 82 games isn't ideal, but um, you know, it is what it is. And, at least, at least there's going to be hockey, you know. 
And I and I actually like yeah. the way the divisions are aligned. And when and when Seattle comes into play next year, it wouldn't shock me at all to see these divisions stay yeah. the way they are permanently. You get your you get four eight teams of eight team divisions. I mean, ultimately you could probably make like a northwest division and like a southwest division, maybe and make it like divisions of four at that point, and then kind of like a, a salt division with like Dallas, Nashville, teams like that, and like a Central with like Chicago and teams like that. But ultimately, I think leaving this current realignment in place long term could work because Seattle would just slide into that opening on the North Division over there since they're pretty much in Canada anyways. So it would make sense. Obviously, you could maybe make the argument that a team like St. Louis and a team like Dallas could swap positions because St. Louis is more centralized in Dallas. I mean, it's kind of a horse of peace. Like if you look at it geographically, but where Chicago is based to like where St. Louis is, it makes sense kind of to have St. Louis and Chicago play each other, but it is what it is. But Chicago is also in a very tough division this year too. I mean, you have teams like Tampa Bay, they won a Stanley cup Nashville. They're always one of the powerhouses that are a Stanley cup contender every year. Dallas made the Stanley cup last year. And then you have teams like Columbus, Carolina, and Florida who just missed the playoffs last year or just snuck in. So just to get in the top four in each division, because the only way you can make the playoffs is to land in the top four, just getting in the top four in this central division is going to be no tall task for Chicago. So even if they may have like a better team than what they had last year, the results might the results might not show based on who they have to play seven times. Yeah, a year. for sure. I mean, I can expect the divisions to look somewhat similar to this for sure. Once um, Seattle's added, you know, I don't know. The NHL might choose to go the NFL route and have eight fourteen divisions, but you know, we'll see. I mean, I I like I pretty much I'm looking at the realignment now, and yeah, I, I like. I like the way it looks. Obviously, it's you know going to be competitive because um, you have a lot of the rivalries intact. Or in the case of Chicago, Detroit, back in place. Um, so yeah, going to be you know four really competitive divisions, and um, we'll just see how it shakes out. Yeah, I'm just I'm excited for hockey. I. I'm not one of the. I'm not a person that watches hockey a lot, but with every with every single sport, with the exception of football, having to kind of change their start dates, change their dates when they finish. I've missed hockey because when I think of winter, I think of hockey and I think of basketball, just because they're indoor sports and hockey playing on ice is kind of something you think about with winter. So having it start as late as it does. I mean, I understand that they had a lot of logistics to work out because they're really the only sport that has so many Canadian teams where you have to figure all the logistics of that out. But I just hope that even with the NBA, the NBA's only got 10 less games as opposed to the NHL has 26 less games than what they normally have. I just hope that plans go according to plan as much as possible. And even if these players only get like a month and a half, two month off season, because if the NBA finals end in July and the Stanley Cup ends in July, they've already said they're planning on starting on time to have a normal calendar for next year. 
I just hope that month and a half off is enough because I do want things to kind of get back to that normal routine. Yeah, I agree. I mean, just, you know, it's obviously going to be a tough, a tough year for everybody involved and, you know, major league baseball has its own scheduling uh, questions that will need to be answered here in the coming weeks and months. But yeah, just, just getting through it will be key and hopefully getting back to normalcy and, um, you know, 20 in late 2021, early 2022. And last topic of the day I'm going to touch on is the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago White Sox. Um, there really hasn't been much going on in the world of baseball right now. A couple of like minor league signings here and there, but nothing really major in terms of like significant moves and like significant traction. But I did notice a couple things with the White Sox and the Cubs, and it's going to be two interesting things to keep an eye on as we kind of get closer to spring training. Uh, starting with the Cubs, and it appears they're considering trading you, Darvish. They're going to want, obviously, a very hefty return, a hefty return in the process to get rid of them, which... I think is ultimately not a wise decision to even consider trading him given the year he had, but it is what it is at this point. And I saw the Toronto Blue Jays as a possible leading suitor to get Darvish considering some of the prospects they'd be willing to give up. And now it looks like the White Sox are in contact with the Brewers about possibly acquiring Josh Hader. And as much as I would love to see Hader get out of the Cubs division, Adding Hater to the White Sox is just basically igniting the gasoline with a match because that's just giving the White Sox more ammunition and kind of putting the Cubs in even a more difficult spot, seeing their neighbors on the south side to continue to make these moves while the Cubs are going the opposite direction. And yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not pleased to hear about the Darvish news. I mean, I have, you know, read that. As you might expect, I mean, they're expecting, you know, the Cubs aren't aren't expected to um, move on from Darvish unless they got basically a King's ransom in return, you know, which you would hope hope for. I mean, obviously, you know, he's he's been one of the top pitchers in baseball since late in the 2019 season. Um, but, yeah, I just – I don't really like that move. I mean, I think having – Darvish and Hendricks at the top of that rotation for the next few years is key to, you know, keeping this World Series window open. Um, and, you know, with Darvish pitching as well as he has since, you know, since really the all-star break of, of last year, 2019, <clears throat> um, you know, he's arguably been the top pitcher in baseball, top pitcher at least in the National League since then. Um, yeah, I, I just, you know, I don't understand that decision. I mean, I know, you know, Hoyer's going to have to do some rebuilding of some sort. I mean, you just have to figure that Darvish would kind of be untouchable. So, you know, we'll just – we'll see if those rumors kind of die down. Um, I hope they do. But, yeah, and as for the White Sox potentially acquiring Hater, I mean, that would be obviously huge. You know, they've had – can you, Colin, can you just imagine yeah. the back of that bullpen then with Josh, Josh Hader? Yeah, Jared yeah, Rock, that would be crochet. huge because, yeah, they have the flame-throwing crochet. I mean, you have two flamethrowers. Um, 
But yeah, I was also going to say, you know, they've had a, a solid closer in recent years, an all-star closer in column A. So, um, but yeah, adding Hater to the mix would be would be huge. I mean, obviously the White Sox, it, you know, it appears like they're going all in to compete for the World Series, uh, to compete for multiple World Series. And speaking of all, I say that again. News on the White Sox too. And speaking of all in, I oh, got some okay. breaking well, news go on ahead. the White Sox Give too. Uh, sources confirm that the White Sox are about oh, to land yeah. the top international yeah, yeah, yeah. prospect, Yolkui Sessions, who is uh, Giannis Cespedes' little brother. But if you go back to the summer when the international signing period began, the Chicago Cubs were actually oh, the yeah. favorites to get Cespedes. So the fact that now Cespedes is going to the south side, it kind of makes you a little eerie that the team that was favored to get him in the Cubs is now losing him to their south side rivals. It gives you that eerie feeling that now people that are now the players that once saw the Cubs as the premier destination to go are kind of now looking the other way and saying, looks like the White Sox are the premier destination. Yeah, for sure. And I'm an idiot. I, I saw that. I got that Cespedes um, notification to my phone like 15, 20 minutes ago or something and just forgot about it. But, yeah, um, that's that's certainly big news. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess – I don't know. I guess the White Sox have kind of cornered the market on getting the top-tier Cuban talent. Um, so many of the great Cuban players in Major League Baseball are, are with the White Sox, and of course, the Cespedes brothers are, are Cuban as well. So, um, the Cespedes family. So, anyway, uh, yeah, I mean that's that's obviously big news, and you know, like I said, I mean the the White Sox are going all in. You know, from the hiring of Tony Larusa to you know, the, the moves they made to build up that team. I mean, they're going to have obviously one of the most attractive rosters in baseball for the next few years. And, um, yeah, I mean, just that would be upping the ante with the rivalry with the Cubs if they got Hater, um, the top Cub killer, except for that, um, you know, Rizzo yeah, right. And follows it <laughs> Except up. for that situation, um, but yeah, you know that that would be upping the ante. But yeah, I mean that's going to obviously be a great rivalry, the Crosstown Classic, for the next few years. Now I don't know if you saw this rumor yesterday, but there was something now floating around that. The Cubs are possibly being connected to Marcus Simeon of the Oakland A's. I I don't know what to make of it. I mean, if that is a possibility, it is a possibility. But that kind of brings the question, what does that mean for Javier Baez? Because Marcus Simeon is going to play shortstop. And Marcus Simeon is a better – I wouldn't say a better hitter because him and Baez put up similar numbers in the power department. I think he's just more of a consistent hitter who you can kind of count on to give you more of a 275, 280 average year in and year out versus Baez. You kind of don't know what you're going to get. But when it comes to Simeon, if the Cubs really in really are in discussions about possibly getting Simeon, 
what do you think that ultimately mean ultimately means for Baez? Does that ultimately mean that this is probably his last season in Chicago, or could it go back to the situation when Addison Russell was here, where Baez moves back to second base to kind of give the Cubs like one of the better middle? Yeah, I think that the latter is is the likely scenario there. Um, I like Simeon a lot. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of hard to believe he's still out there on the free agent market. But, yeah, he was really, really good in 2019, was a an MVP finalist in the American League. And, you know, he could potentially be the answer to the Cubs' leadoff question. Like, he could solve that problem. And, uh, yeah, we could see Baez move back to second base. Um, you know, he's certainly capable of playing both second base and shortstop at a at an elite level, needless to say. So um yeah, that could be that could obvi- that could be a huge move. I mean the thing is, you know, to me, like with I, I just think about Nico, Nico Horner, like I don't you know, I I haven't seen enough from him so far. I love I love Nico Horner. Like you were saying, he's play he's he was drafted. Was he drafted in twenty sixteen or seventeen? I think it was sixteen or eight. Or was it seventeen? It's twenty sixteen or seventeen. I can't remember when he was drafted. Oh no, excuse me. that was when he so he was drafted. He was not drafted out of high school in the twenty fifteen draft. Then he went to Stanford. Ended up getting drafted 24th overall in the 2018 draft. Yeah, so he was drafted not even three years ago. The guys played 92 career games in the minor leagues when he basically had two seasons cut short with a broken wrist and some sort of elbow injury. He played 20, what, 21 games in 2019 in September, and then he only played. I would say probably 40 or 45 games last year. So since 2018, he's played in a total of 175 games, which is barely equivalent to an entire minor league season and barely equivalent to an entire major league season. I'm not saying Nico Horner is not going to be like somebody that the Cubs can count on at second base or shortstop or to be their leadoff hitter in the future. He, He needs more time. He needs to go to AAA where he can play every single day and kind of perfect the player he is. And just look at the situation he was in last year. As soon as the Cubs got Jason Kipnis, you kind of saw the writing on the walls that Kipnis was going to be the starter at second base. But with no minor league season last year, they didn't have a choice to keep, but to keep Horner on the roster. And I really feel that may have hurt his development. But yeah, I'm with you. Like I love Nico Horner and I love the player he is. But I think to better suit his development, I think it would be smart for the Cubs to send him to AAA to start this season, use David Bodie at second base or whoever you want to use at second base for, what, two months maybe, and then get to June. And if you feel yeah, Horner's ready in June, then you can call I guess him. what I was kind of pinning around is, like, I just don't know how ready he is for that. It's almost like the Cubs put too much – or. It's like Epstein put and Hoyer put too much stock and, you know, that freak kind of run he went on after he got called up when, you know, they, you know, and obviously the weird Zobras situation in 2019 kind of precipitated him being called up. 
And then, you know, he had the big games against San Diego and some other big games down the stretch. But, you know, and then you can really kind of count on one hand how many, you know, truly impactful games he had at the plate in 2020. I mean, it just, you know, he didn't didn't make much of a splash. And obviously Kipnis being there, I mean, Kipnis arguably put together, had more, you know, impactful at-bats uh, than Nico did. So, yeah, I'm with you. I think he needs to spend some more time down in AAA um, to, you know, get ready for being an everyday player in Major League Baseball. Like, I just don't think he's ready for that, um, especially not in a 162-game season and especially not with, you know, or however long this upcoming season is going to be. I mean, it's going to be certainly longer than twenty the 2020 season. Um, and also – you know, this, this, I mean, considering what team it is, I mean, it's the Cubs. It's not like it's some small market team. I mean, the Cubs should be looking to, you know, stay in, in win now mode and, um, yeah, acquiring somebody like Simeon that could really, you know, keep them competitive, keep that World Series window open. Um, I mean, I would, I would prefer that over just forcing, Nico to like be in the everyday lineup and just hoping that he can rapidly ascend to being, you know, a legitimate everyday starter for the Cubs. Cause I just don't really think he's there yet. It's funny that you kind of bring up that you feel that Theo and Jed maybe put too much on Nico's stock based on how he played those 21 games to end 2019. But haven't we seen that for the past five years in terms of what Theo has done, where you look at Kyle Schwarber, Chris Bryant, Ian Happ, and all these players that tore it up in the minor leagues for not even 200 games. I think Chris Bryant lasted the longest out of any of those players. I think he was in the minors for like 170 games. Schwarber was there for like 140 or whatnot. But you see these Cubs hitters just tearing it up in the minor leagues, and all of a sudden Theo is so quick to – get him up to the major leagues. It almost feels like he may have rushed all these players up too soon and kind of didn't give them a chance to struggle because they were having so much success at the minor league level that they never really went through extended periods of struggles. And now that they've struggled for the past couple of years, it's like almost as if they don't know how to yeah, get out of Yeah, for sure. Struggles. I mean, you know, you can certainly point to that as maybe being a reason that, you know, Epstein decided to move on. Because, um, yeah, the Nico situation just didn't really pan out this year. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just such a key thing in, in baseball that's pretty unique to major league baseball is like giving players the opportunity to really come into their own in the minor leagues and climb that ladder and, you know, earn their spot on a major league roster. Like that's so important to ensuring that players will be successful and be able to, you know, stay at the major league level on a permanent basis once they finally get there. So, yeah, I mean, that's just why anytime you have a, a player who, you know, gets called up and is expected to be an everyday player, you know, when they're only, you know, 22 like Nico was when he got called up in September of last year. Um, 
Yeah, that's just such a, a key thing that you hope to avoid is having a player who it turns out isn't quite ready and then they have to go through the process again and then there's more urgency to get them back on the big league roster. So, you know, for Nico's sake, yeah, I just think a couple more months and triple A ball potentially longer than that um, could be, you know, huge to getting him fully ready to be an everyday player. And I just, I just hope Hoyer won't, you know, avoid, you know, and considering the Cubs are in the thick of things with the Simeon rumors, uh, maybe, maybe Hoyer, that will be his approach is to not, you know, miss out on key uh, everyday players just to hope to get the young guys integrated faster. Yeah, and they also have that um, Chase Strump, who's, I guess, going to make a lot of headway, especially with how he played in the Instructional League this past fall, which has now given the Cubs more options to consider long-term at second base, because that's ultimately where he's probably going to play. But giving, going back to what I said about the whole rushing players up, Javier Baez is a prime example of how I feel Bryant, Schwarber, and a lot of these Cubs hitters should have been handled. Uh, He was drafted in 2011 and barely played in 2011, which is understandable. But then he goes 2012, he goes and hits 16 homers, 46 RBIs. Comes back in 2013, he goes and hits 37 homers, 111 RBIs in double A in 2013. Cubs didn't feel he was ready, so they sent him back to the minors in 2014. He goes and hits. 23 homers for Iowa. They called him up at the end of the year. He still struggled. They sent him back to Iowa again in 2015, where he goes and hits 33 home runs again. And then he came up in September and stuck after that. That's kind of what I feel they should have did with Bryant, where, yes, he had, like, all this ultimate success in the minors right away, but you didn't really let him do it long term. As soon as you saw him – like getting that success. And as soon as you saw him having the start he had, like off of that 2015 spring training, it's like, okay, we've seen enough. Let's call him up. He never was given that chance to like develop and kind of work through his struggles like Javi Baez. Cause if you're going based off of that, the year that Javi Baez put together in 2013 in the minors was probably the best season any of the core prospects have ever had. And yet he still sat in the minors two two years after that yeah. just to make sure. He yeah, that's a good point. Ready. And, you know, it, it paid dividends, obviously. And, yeah, with Brian, I mean, you know, he's obviously like a, a generational talent, so to speak, a, you know, a Bryce Harper level guy. So, you know, it made sense. The Cubs were eager to get him on the big league roster. But I just don't think Nico is to that. I mean, I think he's – Really good, obviously. He was a first-round pick, but I just – I mean, he's a guy you need to, you know, ensure he can get the proper reps uh, in the minors before expecting him to be an everyday second baseman for the Cubs. Yeah. You can pretty much look at Ian Happ as an example. Look look what happened with Ian Happ. He burst onto the scene in 2017 as a rookie – completely struggled in 2018 to the point where he lost playing time at the end of the year. They send him to the minors for four months in 2019. And since he's come back from the minors, he's been a completely different player. And I think that's exactly the approach that you need to take with Horner where 
he may not be happy to get the demotion, but in terms of his development as a player, getting those three, four months in AAA and kind of just refining your craft of who you want to become as a player, it's going to go a long way for his development. And ultimately it's going to help not only himself, but it's going to help the Cubs long-term. But that's all the time we got for you today on Chicago Sports HQ Chatter. Uh, Cole and I want to wish everyone a safe and happy Merry Christmas. And obviously heading into the New Year, a safe and happy New Year, even though we will be on again before New Year's. But, yeah, just uh, Cole, uh, yeah, have a Merry Christmas, and uh, I'll talk to you next week, man. Awesome. All Sounds right, good. Thanks, Stay man. safe. Enjoy the holidays, and we'll talk.